admit that you got my ESP messages about matching and wearing sheer black over-the-top mm-hmm. outfits. Mm-hmm. You can just admit it. Tell the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you were the inspiration for my outfit, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh, no, I'm 100% serious. One time you wore this shirt with the sheer sleeves. Roman's wearing a black top with sheer black sleeves, and it looks very cute on her. Thank you. And so when I was getting dressed today, I remembered that, and so I wore a black shirt with sheer <laughs> sleeves. <laughs> And then we show up to recording and we're in the same outfit, just different fonts. The funny thing is the exact sheer top you're wearing, I also own because Mm -hmm. you brought it when you came to visit me and I went, I want that. (laughs) Day by day, we are merging into one person. Oh, absolutely. I'm surprised it hasn't become more obvious sooner or maybe everyone is just sitting there like... (laughs) I think it's pretty obvious. We're just redundant. (laughs) Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I'm a redundancy of Tracy Harrison. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. I'm a Control-C, Control-V of Rowan Hall. (laughs) (laughs) She really said, hold on, I'm in IT. Yeah. Of course it chooses right now to start raining. Are you kidding me? If you hear a little bit of rain... It's ambiance. <laughs> the funny thing about saying I'm a redundancy of you is you're a twin. So you already yes. have genetics shared with someone. And yes. I just came along and went, no genetic link, only vibes. Only vibes. The amount of times I tell people they're my twin or that we're twinning, and they're like, you can't do that. You have one. That is not as much fun. Oh, also – this is Willing and Fable, a podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Every week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you, dear listener, would like to support our podcast, consider sharing your favorite listener legend with us. You can find us on social media at Willing and Fable, or you can email us at willingandfable at gmail.com. There are tons of other ways to support the show. Tweet at us. Instagram at us. Leave a five-star review. Tell your significant human or cat or dog how great we are. (laughs) Or you can feast upon a meal fit for kings with a goblet in your hand and a friend by your side. Or you can just order takeout and chill with your friends online. It works just as well. No matter what. We're glad you're hanging out with us today. (laughs) take out meals fit for kings all of them always i think constantly any takeout meal i get would have been a feast for kings so i'm not just being lazy i'm living large (laughs) (laughs) so before we dive into the episode we wanted to share with you all a small business that i found on tiktok and then promptly fell in love with Lady Castle Store is a small business run by Sharon, a 24-year-old from Venezuela, now living in Illinois. She started her business because she's always been passionate about creating handmade art. She recently fell in love with crafting handmade polymer clay earrings. And while starting a business is super hard, she talked to us about how she just can't imagine her life not doing it anymore. She hopes that she can connect with people through her jewelry. And that really resonated with us because, of course, you all know, that's kind of how we came to podcasting. Mm-hmm. 
sharing stories and connecting with people was what drove us to do what we do. So we were really excited when we found Sharon to partner with. Uh, I'm currently wearing her sun and hand earrings. And I gave Jamie a pair of her psychedelic mushroom earrings for our shared birthday. Because as we said, I'm a twin. (laughs) I have a pair of her rainbow cloud earrings. She was kind enough to send us some pieces. And Mm -hmm. basically, Tracy wears her work, I don't know, every day, every... All the time. (laughs) All the time. I, I Listen, I love a dramatic earring. This is where Rowan and I differ and become one whole human together is because... I love a big statement earring, and Rowan's like the queen of a good statement necklace. Oh, that's true. I never thought about that. So when I was like, hey, Trace, I like your earrings, of course, she went, I'm going to share her TikTok with you right now. And yeah, then yeah. we <laughs> fell down the rabbit hole and, you know, got to actually meet her. And now we have fancy earrings and we're very spoiled podcasters. So if you think Tracy has good taste, fundamentally, you should check out <laughs> Sharon's work at Lady Castle Store on Etsy and also search Lady Castle Store on social media. Use code FABLE for free shipping when you order from Lady Castle Store. That's F-A-B-L-E for free shipping to the U.S. on your order. So now it's time for us to dive into our episode Quick content warning for domestic abuse. There will be brief mentions at the top of the episode, but we will dive deeper into that topic at the end of the episode. Listener discretion, as always, is advised. Tracy, you picked this topic mm-hmm. absolutely bucking the schedule, as we often do. We yeah. just say... The schedule's like, it's the pirate code. It's like, it's guidelines, not rules. <laughs> They're guidelines. <laughs> tell, tell me you grew up obsessed with pirates without telling me you grew up obsessed with pirates, the Caribbean. <laughs> I did choose this topic uh, because after all the Roe v. Wade nonsense occurred, there was a lot of trending on social media. One of those things was Liz Estrada, which Rowan covers in episode 82. The other one that I saw trending was Aqua Tofana, which I don't know about you, Rowan. I didn't know anything about. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, I know nothing. Great. So I chose to dig into Aqua Tofana and its creator, Julia Tofana, for this week's episode. I'm going to start out this week with my story, which is a sort of, you can think of it as like an advertisement for Aqua Tofana. <laughs> <laughs> She's mixing it up. She's starting with fiction or history or fiction about history. Yes, that one. There it is. <laughs> the word is historical fiction, Rowan. Yeah, I can hear you all screaming. <laughs> So now, for my story this week. She mixes the poison well in a cup, knowing that later her husband will sup, and dine upon a feast shall he, for fine a man's last meal should be. And later from sleep he will not wake, shock and grief now widowed she'll fake. The real emotions she'll have inside are pity, relief, joy, and now pride. And Aqua Tofana is what she shall thank for all of the money she'll get from the bank. A leisurely life is what's waiting for sure for any a wife who shops at our store. So we know that this is a story Tracy really cares about because <laughs> she waxed poetic about it. I love writing poetry. As, I, as I've been doing this podcast, I've been finding the types of stories I love telling. And it is a struggle not to write a poem every other week because i love translating 
the things we research into poetry. And it was just so much fun to kind of write like a you could see this as you're like flipping through one of those magazines from the 50s where it's got a big bottle of aqua tofana and then just this on the side as part of the advertisement. So right now, audiences only know that husbands are being poisoned. Watch your takeout, everybody. And aqua tofana is what it's called. Exactly. So hook us up. What is going on? <laughs> We're going to start with a quote from Mike Dash's amazing article for the University of Cambridge titled, excitingly, Toxicology in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Quote, Aqua Tofana, a poison first developed in Sicily in about 1630, became the subject of a notorious trial that took place in Rome in 1659. Although apparently based on arsenic, it was so notorious that by the early 18th century, it began to be ascribed almost magical properties. As such, aqua tofana became a catch-all term referring to an imagined class of slow poisons that were thought to be precise, undetectable, and invariably lethal. Popular belief in the existence of slow poisons remained common well into the 19th century, and the details of the original aqua tofana were largely obscured and forgotten. End quote. Okay, so here's where we're at. Aqua tofana is a poison from the 1630s in Sicily that became so well known, it was the Kleenex of its day. It was the brand name that described <laughs> the generic thing. Okay, I don't ask for a Kleenex, I guess. <laughs> Careful the Kleenex you ask for. Is it only liquid? It's poured into beverages? We will get into it. Um, most of the information from today's episode is from Mike Dash and his article quoted above, as well as his article titled, Aqua Tofana, Slow Poisoning and Husband Killing in 17th Century Italy. Rowan, I have a piece of art here for you that is supposedly a bottle of aqua tofana. It looks like uh, this is printed from an etching, maybe, mm -hmm. but it's that classic type of picture ad where there's entirely too much going on. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's got a big circular frame that has a bottle in it, and outside of the frame, it looks like there's kind of like an apothecary setting. Someone is grinding with a mortar and pestle, presumably in the background. The interesting thing about the bottle is, I guess it has a saint maybe on it, but it looks like a tarot card of like the Hierophant or something. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I was so excited about the fact that I found the one with a saint on it because, and we will dive deep into this, but it was not uncommon for women to have these bottles with saints on them among their many possessions because it was thought that if you had a real bottle of tears from a saint or whatever from a saint that it had this healing property so it was seen as, as medicine so when you put aqua tofana in a religious bottle people don't suspect it as poison and you can slowly poison your husband so so many people poison their husbands specifically that that this is a topic that people could tweet about post roe v wade <laughs> Oh, absolutely. The, yes. So let's dive into Aqua Tofana and its inventor, Julia Tofana. She is the one that is almost always associated with Aqua Tofana. 
I want to clarify, there is so very little information about her. We're not even entirely sure she existed. Oh. Yes. Oh, so it's like she's the absinthe fairy of Aqua Tofana. She could be like, everyone's associating this with this one girl, but actually she could be a total made-up fantasy person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we know that she was most likely born in Palermo, Italy around 1620. And there's a theory that she may have taken the first name of her mother as her last name which was a common practice at the time. This has led historians to believe that she was the daughter of another Palermo poisoner. Tofania Diadamo was accused of poisoning with an arsenic concoction of her own invention, potentially Aqua Tofana, and she was executed on July 12, 1633. She was executed for having poisoned her late spouse, Francesco Diadamo, and for having trafficked in illegal lethal poisons. She was preceded by Francesca Lasarda, who was executed for also having trafficked in illegal, lethal poisons the year prior. These two women were accused of selling poisons together in Palermo in the 1600s. So, for a long time, Tofania Diadamo was known in history as the alleged mother of Giulia Tofana. You with me? Yes, I'm totally with you. It's Tofana, Tofana, and non-Tofana so far. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was said that Julia named the poison Aqua Tofana after her mother and then fled to Rome after her mother's execution, where she founded a new business selling poisons. In reality, this is probably a myth. <laughs> it, it likely came about from a hypothesis from the 19th century, which is well over 100 years after the time in which Julia lived. So I think it's worth quickly interjecting because this is something you and I have talked about and maybe a lot of people know, probably those who like fantasy fiction. Um, but poison is usually considered like the women's method yes. of killing people because mm -hmm. it's subtle and it requires forethought and planning and you don't have to be strong but 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 and i think knowing that adds a little bit of zest to this story yes because women didn't have access to a lot of ways to protect themselves except for poison julia tofana whose actual name was julia mangiardi left palermo for rome in 1624 However, it does appear that she did found a business selling poison, which she eventually left to her stepdaughter. The big thing here is that there is nothing historically to indicate that Tofania Diadamo was the mother of Giulia Mangiardi at all. The best we can kind of guess is that Giulia may have been her disciple and learned from her. I want to know how you even have a poison selling business. Is it an underground thing or do you have a yes. storefront? It's an underground thing. Don't you worry, we will get into the logistics of it. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. So I have another picture here, which is a an image of a young wife murdering her old husband with poison so she can marry her younger lover. Is her younger lover the woman outside the room? I don't think it is, but can we pretend that it is? It, it totally is in my head. Right? Okay, so this looks like it's from another etching printed... It's funny that the husband is, like, older and she's younger because they're basically both just the most basic faces yes. you could possibly have. So you don't get any indications of anything other than that they do have eyes and nose and mouth. Absolutely. That is correct. <laughs> and he's sitting in bed in his little nightdress and his funny little hat. He's, like, reaching mm. forward, like, 
graspy, grabby hands at the soup she's carrying. Yes, wife slash mommy, please give me my soup. Um, and she's walking in. She maybe looks pleased. I don't know. It's a stretch again uh, with mm-hmm. the detail. But just outside the open door, there's a maid, presumably, or a woman, mm-hmm. I think a maid, who is kind of looking in the room from afar. Mm-hmm. And so everyone who's listening needs to know in their heart of hearts, that she's poisoning her husband to be with the maid. Yes. So she can be a widow Mm -hmm. and be in her house, and then the maid keeps working there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's how this goes. Yeah, that's the (laughs) headcanon. It's canon canon. Who's going to stop us? Yeah, you know what? I want want someone to come out and be like, no, I was there, actually. and I was in this etching with Mm -hmm. no face. (laughs) in the 17th century in rome women were given very little opportunity to advance themselves in their lives they had to marry a man in order to achieve any sort of security or power and if they didn't wed they had the option of sex work but little else to secure an income perhaps they had work as a maid a laundress or another occupation that might get them by but it would not afford them any station in society However, as you mentioned, Rowan, if they became widows, they would get to keep their money and their maid lover and their power without the nuisance of a husband. Ugh. Ugh, yes. I would have made such a good widow in 17th century Rome, let me tell you. You would have been thriving. Absolutely. (laughs) So for many women... This option was the most attractive, and luckily for them, 17th century Rome had a flourishing criminal magical underworld that provided the services to make this possible. Criminal magical underworld? I put that in quotes because that was directly quoted from the article. Criminal magical underworld. The article from Mike Dash. Yes. Mike Dash. I love it. Incredible. He, he, he really came through for this episode. So I just do want to quickly add for legal reasons and tax purposes uh, that Tracy and I do not approve of poisoning your husband to become a widow. We do not approve of poisoning your husband to become a widow unless he's an abusive husband from the 17th century. So this underground criminal magical underworld was found in other large European cities and was made up of alchemists, apothecaries, and experts in black magic. In reality, these experts didn't so much as dabble in the dark arts as they did solve problems that doctors or priests of the time could or would not solve, such as providing abortions. This network was meant to be a way to help women in dangerous, painful, or otherwise unsafe situations. Do we have any way of knowing how deadly hiring one of these people could be? Like, if they're getting illegal abortions... Is it something that you would likely survive, do we think? Or is it just like, ah? It depends on the timing. It depends on who's helping you and what method they're using. It, it It's not it's not safe, but it was the same way we talk about how you, you think of all the, the witch recipes as like eye of newt and toe of frog and how those were just names for plants mm-hmm. or names for ingredients that the people in that group knew. It's kind of like this. This was a network of people who were there to protect each other in the ways that they knew how. Sometimes those ways were more effective than others, depending on the time and the place. Right. 
So these illicit services are where Aquatofana comes in, and in fact flourished. This poison became so well known that Mozart, upon his death a full century later, declared he'd been done in by Aquatofana, stating, I am sure that I have been poisoned. I cannot rid myself of this idea. Someone has given me Aquatofana and calculated the precise time of my death. End quote. All right, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And what this shows is that the belief in Aquatofana was such that they thought you could quietly dose someone and calculate when they will die undetected from your poisoning. Oh my God, that is so witchcrafty, like mm-hmm. burn the witches. Mm hmm. The reality is Mozart probably died of either syphilis or rheumatic fever, or honestly, even from eating an undercooked pork chop. We're not sure. (laughs) But Mozart truly believed on his deathbed and announced that he thought it was this silent killer, Aquatofana. It was probably a pork chop, but... (laughs) (laughs) Aquatofana was credited with what amounted to supernatural powers, and it was blamed for hundreds, if not thousands, of agonizing deaths. Shockingly, men didn't like this newfound power that women held. One of the few constants in the various portraits and events of this time is the depiction of Julia Tofana and all of her gang as hags and their female customers as faithless Jezebels. It's in writings. It's in images. It's all over the place. Seriously? Absolutely. Oh my god, yes, proud hag. Right? Proud Jezebel. The only way that this could have happened is if the women poisoning were just, they're just old hags. They're just old hags who couldn't get a husband. And the women who were buying the stuff were just these little Jezebels. They were being naughty. They're killing their husbands so they can go and fritter about with other men. Or the maid. No one's... I, I. Do you think that they were like, ah, yes, these Jezebels are killing their husbands so they can go be queer women? Or were they like, it's all about the men. Like, they're killing the one man to get the next man. A hundred percent they believed they were killing the one man to get the next man because the idea of queer women wasn't even really a thing until hundreds of years later. Why did this poison become so popular and so famous when presumably people have been poisoning people forever? We'll get into it a little bit, but this one became so famous, I think, one, marketing. Two, (laughs) it was packaged so discreetly. It was packaged to look like perfume or makeup or a religious (sighs) item that sits on your counter all day, every day. And the belief, I think it was a rumor mill just spiraled because the belief was a couple drops could kill someone. It would be undetectable. No way for you to know after the death that it was Aquatofana. And then it started to be believed that you could time the death for maybe even weeks after you poisoned them. Do you think someone is making a perfume called Aquatofana? There, there are options of perfumes called Aquatofana. Excellent. Excellent. That's incredible. That I mean, you have to, right? That's brilliant. Ugh. Sorry, I totally derailed you by wanting by shopping for the vibe. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, never apologize for shopping for the vibe. <laughs> so, Chambers Journal has a quote where they stress the horror of a strong man reduced to nothing by his wife and tells us that the poison was a subtle killer. Quote 
administered in wine or tea or some other liquid by the flattering traitress, it produced but a scarcely noticeable effect. The husband became a little out of sorts, felt weak and languid, so little indisposed that he would scarcely call in a medicine man. After the second dose of poison, this weakness and languor became more pronounced. The beautiful Medea, who expressed so much anxiety for her husband's indisposition, would scarcely be an object of suspicion, and perhaps would prepare her husband's food, as prescribed by the doctor, with her own fair hands. In this way, the third drop would be administered, and would prostrate even the most vigorous man. The doctor would be completely puzzled to see that the apparently simple ailment did not surrender to his drugs, and while he would still be in the dark as to its nature, other doses would be given, until at length death would claim the victim for its own. To save her fair fame, the wife would demand a post-mortem examination. Result? Nothing. Except that the woman was able to pose as a slandered innocent, and then it would be remembered that her husband died without either pain, inflammation, fever, or spasms. If, after this, the woman within a year or two formed a new connection, nobody could blame her. For everything considered, it would be a sore trial for her to continue to bear the name of a man whose relatives had accused her of poisoning him. End quote. Oh, it was so good. I love that quote. I had to add the whole block in because mwah, 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 so delicious. It, it's funny. It made me think of The Sixth Sense. Walk me through this journey. I know. But you know the scene where um, the young girl passed away and she like shows Haley Joel Osment that she was poisoned by her mother. And you oh, get this whole... yes, yes, yes. I mean... Is it a one-to-one? No, but that's how I imagined it. But just the beautiful Medea. Beautiful Medea. The flattering traitress. (laughs) With her um, own fair hands. own fair hands prepared the meal just as the doctor ordered. She's just looking after him. And she's the one who asked for the autopsy. And you found nothing. I just want to poison you, ooh-woo. (laughs) <laughs> you can have a little poisoning as a treat <laughs> men were so scared of this and i think that's also part of why it became so popular is men were terrified good <laughs> yes that's why i covered this topic <laughs> sorry y'all she caught me in a mood <laughs> she wrote this episode in a mood all right Mike Dash describes the two key benefits of Aqua Tufana's slow-acting nature. Firstly, that it made the symptoms produced in its victims resemble those of advancing disease. And secondly, and this one is no small matter in deeply religious Italy, it not only gave a dying husband time to put his affairs in order, but also ensured that he was able to repent his sins. Since that in turn was thought to guarantee his entry into heaven, his killer didn't need to feel much grief over the fate of his eternal soul. Wow. Yeah. They're really just pulling everything into this. They're just like, 
basically what I love about this whole story is that men are freaking out because they're like, women are able to poison us and they have no guilt about it. And they're so blinded to the reality of why women would want to do that, of maybe that they're playing a part in the circumstances that made women want to do this so often. Just don't be worthy of poisoning. Problem solved. Oh, no, but the problem isn't isn't them, Rowan. The problem is the murdering traitoress with her fair hands, the little Medea. It's all her. It's We haven't even really touched on it yet, but you rightly pointed out, like, the horrible economic circumstances and the way that these women don't have any options. But also, if the men are imagining this woman getting scooped up and married and she's being taken care of and she never wants for anything and she's blissfully happy and then she still poisons her husband, they're really missing something because... If you are blissfully happy in your marriage, even if society is not really doing it for you, you're still not going to poison your husband. There's something else going on. How were the men to know, Rowan? She seemed so happy. She was so quiet and obedient and did everything he said. It's not his fault that she wasn't clearly unhappy based on the things that made him happy to do and the way he liked existing. It's not his fault that she didn't like that. Oh, God, the chilling, the chilling conclusion of that is, you know, I abused her and she never said anything. Ugh. Yes, it is. All right. Let's talk about Julia Tofana. Okay. The story, as most tell it, goes thusly. Julia Tofana invented a poison that was odorless and looked relatively harmless. She would package it up into makeup or perfume containers so that it could live on the shelves of everyday women without notice. It is said that four to six drops could kill a man, especially if given over the course of a few days in meals or drinks. Do you think it's like garlic in a recipe where they're like, one clove of garlic, and you and I are like, six cloves of garlic. Six minimum. And so they're like, <laughs> four to six drops, more like 25 drops. Let's be really sure. I don't want to be doing this again and again and again, only getting half the effect. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to have a good pasta if you don't have enough garlic and poison. I've always said it, you know, the two things that every pasta needs, <laughs> garlic and poison. <laughs> <laughs> the principal ingredient of Aquatofana was arsenic. And while its use spread throughout much of southern Italy, it was typically administered by women to their husbands, most commonly in order to come into their fortunes. These poisons were often known as inheritance powders. Julia Tofana and her gang of women were supposedly able to use these poisons to dispose of at least 600 victims. Their secret was well kept for all of those years by a widening group of satisfied clients. What? What? Yes. That's so many. The big selling point you see when you research Aqua Tofana, Julia Tofana, anything around this topic, is Julia Tofana, the serial killer with the highest body count of 600 victims. Like, it's very sensationalized in that way. <laughs> It's like the murderess of Italy, and you always see the same painting you used in the Witch Familiars episode of the woman making the love potion. That yeah. is on every 
article with a description of Julia Tofana making Aqua Tofana. That's not what that painting is. It's everywhere. It just, the idea of even close to 600 victims and no one being an absolute narc mm-hmm. is kind of shocking. Not it because is. 600 people couldn't die, but because I don't think 600 people could keep a secret. Yes. We will get into the potential downfall of this gang. This gang started when Julia Tofana arrived in the wealthy capital of the Papal States in the company of a much younger woman, Girolama Spara, which was, she was probably Julia's stepdaughter. Okay. The pair had supposedly fled Palermo in the wake of the attempted poisoning gone wrong. Again, possible connection to Tofania Diadamo as either Julia's mother or mentor. When the two came into this new city, they quickly resumed their old activities of poisoning and settled in. So here's how they did it. Firstly, they recruited several new accomplices, two poison makers, Giovanna de Grandis and Maria Spinola, nicknamed Grifola, and two saleswomen named Laura Crispalti and Graziosa Farina. At some point, this group obtained a regular supply of arsenic by striking up an acquaintance with a priest named <gasps> Father Girolamo, whose brother was an apothecary and willing to sell the women poison. Oh, having a father involved in this, dealing arsenic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's just good. It's just juicy from top to bottom. And I can't believe no one is, like, shouting it from the rooftops. This is so cool. I feel like you could make a movie about this, or maybe someone has, that has the vibe of perfume. You yes. know that Mm-hmm. I want a perfume ad, like a parody perfume ad, but it's for Aqua Tofana. That had to have existed, right? Or like the conversation where you're like, Tracy, I got this new amazing perfume. You're like, <gasps> Tell me more about it. Yeah, I've been wanting to impress my husband with a new perfume. <laughs> and you just chase that down yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yes, yeah. it comes in this. Do you want to borrow this one from me? <laughs> oh, I have the perfect thing that your husband will love. You can just borrow mine. Yeah. <laughs> what I want is to, like, take a Chanel commercial or, like, a Dior commercial, but just change it to Aqua Tofana. Dior. Aqua Tofana. Aqua Tofana. The scent of freedom. <gasps> that was off the dome, y'all. She's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Dash, our boy, our man, states that it was this gang of six who made and sold Aquatofana in Rome during the 1650s. So little is known about the women that it's impossible to do more than speculate about their relationships and what brought them together. No clear pattern can be discerned, but Tofana was apparently the leader. De Grandis would eventually confess that she was taught to make poison by her, and the group contained both Sicilians and native Romans. End quote. We found the narc, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, get ready. Oh, no. Julia Tofana died in about 1651, probably in her own bed and uh, unsuspected of any crime. And from then on, Spara, who is probably her daughter or stepdaughter, took over as leader of the gang. She was the widow of a Florentine gentleman by the name of Carazzi, 
and moved comfortably in aristocratic circles, while de Grandis, the poison maker, dealt mostly with the less exalted clients. Hmm. According to one contemporary manuscript unearthed in a local archive, Spara operated as a kind of cunning woman who sold charms and cures to the gentle women and nobility of Rome. These activities would not only have introduced her to potential customers, but would also have given her a shrewd idea of which of her clients were happy in their marriages and which were unhappy, not to mention which might be desperate enough to seek drastic remedies and be able to keep the secret. Spara and her companions likely took the arsenic supplied by Father Girolamo and disguised it, first by turning it into a liquid, and then bottling it in glass jars that identified it as manna of St. Nicholas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Mike Dash goes on to explain that at the time, it was known as a miraculous healing oil that supposedly sweated from the bones of St. Nicholas. Liquids purporting to have been collected at the saint's tombs were commonly available, often in elaborately decorated bottles, and the manna's celebrated sanctity and its reputation as a cure-all rendered it unlikely that any holy bottle would attract suspicion or be subjected to minute inspection. We also know, at least the historian Ademolo tells us, that while Spara's chief motive was money, she sometimes did supply her poison free to poor women in desperate situations. Out of pity or because she was angered by the abuse their wretched husbands meted out to them. End quote. There are several problems with these versions of events. One is that there are two wildly different versions of Julia Tofana's life story. The first has her flourishing in Sicily as early as the 1630s, while the other has her still alive in prison a full century later. Okay, but that makes me wonder, who was telling the first story? And who invented the second story to combat it? Mm -hmm. Because in one story, she's happy and healthy, and in the next story, she's suffering in prison. Yes. Somehow, she's supposed to have operated in Palermo, and in Naples, and in Rome, and is variously said to have been the inventor of the poison that bears her name, or she was merely just an inheritor. Not to mention that there isn't any certainty when it comes to the ingredients of the elixir at all. Most accounts agree that aqua tofana was based on arsenic, but some state that it also contained toad flax, Spanish fly, an extract of snapdragon, a solution of pennywort known as aqua kimbalaria, and even madman's spittle. Yummy. Yum, yum, yum. Drink it up. So, Rowan, we're not even sure how Julia Tofana died. One source says she died of natural causes in 1651, as I mentioned earlier, while another says that she found sanctuary in a convent and lived there for many years, continuing to make her poison and dispensing it via a network of nuns and clerics. <laughs> she and Julie Topney can just hang out in their convent that they apparently retired to. I had the same thought. Because they hated men. Yeah, yeah. When you hate men, you poison them, you sword fight them, and then you go and you retire amongst a bunch of other ladies. It's a good pitch. It is. There are other descriptions that say she was captured, tortured, and executed, 
though they differ as to whether her death occurred in 1659 or 1709 or 1730. In one especially detailed account, Tofana was dragged bodily from her sanctuary and strangled, after which, quote, her body was thrown at night into the area of the convent from which she had been taken, end quote. But, Rowan, the biggest question facing historians when it comes to Aqua Tofana is this. Did the poison itself even exist? Uh Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Nope, I led you on a whole journey to bring you here. You, oh, you're good. You got me good. Oh, you. (laughs) So pretty much every account of Aqua Tofana stresses its unmatched potency, both the strength and certainty of the poison and its devilish elusiveness. However, these traits are almost impossible to replicate today. The elixir was supposed to be one of the slow poisons, much feared in the 17th century, which were so gradual in their operation as to make the victim appear to die slowly of natural causes. Yet the known poisons of that period lacked the qualities ascribed to the Tofana poison. They were less reliable, more readily detected, and produced far more violent symptoms than aqua Tofana was generally reported to do. Salomani Marino concludes that it was Tufania Diadamo who first created the poison known as Aqua Tofana, and that it was named after her and not Julia Tofana. His sources say that she sold it in the Sicilian capital with the assistance of an accomplice, Francesca Lasarda. Sicily was at that time a part of the Spanish Empire, and it was the Spanish viceroy, Ferdinando Afan de Rivera, who seems to have taken most of the credit for bringing the pair to justice. His personal involvement in the case led to the peculiarly horrible manner of Diadamo's death. This was done by a form of drawing and quartering that was apparently excruciating, even by the normal standards of this punishment. Why is it always like this? Every time. We covered the Salem Witches, and I'm actually listening to a podcast that's breaking it down day by day. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's always, like, make women scary, kill women, look who is the biggest, baddest Mm -hmm. boy. Exactly. Exactly. It's always put women in a position where they're forced to find a way to grasp at any scrap of power, and the second you perceive them as doing that, crush them. And having a story that allows you to do it without actually really having to do all that much at all is so handy. It is. Like, of course, there are so many accounts of Julia Tofana in all these different years, because then someone can come along and be like, I killed Julia Tofana. I killed Julia Tofana, like Spartacus in reverse. (laughs) God, if you get nothing from this episode, know that Julia Tofana is reverse Spartacus. I was telling someone about our podcast the other day. We were chatting for a while, and I was like, well, you know, in our podcast, all roads lead to capitalism, and eventually everything is appropriated and turned into Christianity. Like, why is that always the case? I don't know. It's it's patriarchy, capitalism, Christianity. Those are the three the three things we see a lot. Sexism, racism, and classism. Yes. Here, have an ism for your mythology. <laughs> the next time that we see something that may be Aquatofana is in Naples in the years 1643 to 1645. 
some important context to know is that this city was also in Spanish possession at the time. It was known as the capital of the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Naples was, thusly, precisely the sort of place likely to attract refugees from Palermo who were on the run from the Sicilian authorities. Apparently, the Naples toxin worked in exactly the same way as Tufania Diadamo's poisons and was thus declared to be most likely Aqua Tufana. This does seem something of a stretch, though, because if the active ingredient in Aqua Tufana was arsenic, then many arsenic-based poisons would have produced similar symptoms. And Medici's notes, still stored in a Florentine archive, uh, they do nothing to resolve this problem, nor do we know the names, the methods, the clientele, or even the fate of the Naples poisoner. The effect that Aqua Tufana supposedly had on its victims are summarized in a warning notice to the public that was issued in Rome late in the 1650s, when fear of the poison was at its absolute height. According to this document, the chief symptoms were agonizing pains in the stomach and the throat, vomiting, extreme thirst, and dysentery. Oof. All of these are highly suggestive of arsenic poisoning, though Adamolo, the historian I mentioned earlier where this information comes from, cites a contemporary account suggesting that the poisons made by Spara and her associates also contained antimony and lead. An entry in a famous diary of the time mentions a fourth possible ingredient, solamato, which is a highly toxic contemporary treatment for venereal diseases, more Oof. usually known today as mercury. mercuric chloride. Oh. So that's where there's this weird thing of, did it really exist because it was so unique? And it grew to these supernatural proportions where it, it could do all these different things. But if its base was still supposed to be arsenic, what made it so special and why can't we replicate anything like that today or even know what could cause the same symptoms today? I just assumed that maybe the deaths were as violent as that describes basically like puking out your insides. And it's described as being more subtle because you can blame that on any of a number of things, especially mm -hmm. when medicine is so lackluster. And that the only reason they couldn't detect it was because medicine was so lackluster. Like, not that it would be so indetectable that we'd even have trouble with it today. Right. Right. Also, mercuric chloride is mercury and chlorine, fundamentally. And the, I... Like, the fact that this is a time when people thought that was a legitimate treatment for venereal disease and had to suffer through that. We've talked th about that a couple times on this podcast. Yeah. But, like, if that's a treatment for disease, it doesn't surprise me that if this did exist, the effects of arsenic would not be viewed as being quite as dramatic as we see them now. Does it make sense? It does. It does make complete sense. My only counter to that is contemporary writings saying that it has a different reaction in the body than other arsenic poisons of the time. Hey, listen, I'm not saying it existed. I just – I'm bummed. It could have existed. We don't know, so therefore we get to choose what we want to believe. <laughs> For legal reasons and tax purposes, I'm only a little bit bummed. <laughs> Historian. And our favorite boy, Mike Dash, explains that there are two possible namesakes, and thus stories, for the Aqua Tofana we think of today. The first story, and probably the most reliable one, is 
the accounts based on Italian archives, and it was supplied by two 19th century scholars. I've mentioned them before already. Alessandro Ademolo, who published the results of his research in a short booklet, and Salvatore Salomene Marino. Together, their research places Tofana firmly in the early 17th century Sicily, and explain that she was only one of a group of poisoners and wise women who collectively sold death throughout half of Italy for the better part of 30 years. In this case, the poison was likely named after Giulia Tofana and her group of accomplices. The second rival version of events can be sketched by drawing together material that first appeared in French and German Hmm. in the first half of the 18th century. These events take place about a full century after the previous theory. These accounts describe a woman with the name of Tofana, who was active in the first years of the 18th century and lived in a Naples prison as late as 1730. These accounts also contain a description of the execution on July 12th, 1633. This was the execution of a prisoner named Teofania Diadamo. Remember, the woman potentially Giulia Tofana's mother or mentor. While there are a few accounts of this 18th century Tofana, Mike Dash digs into all of them in his article on Aqua Tofana and concludes that, quote, it is surely permissible to suggest that whoever the mysterious prisoner of 1730 was, she may have been nicknamed after her infamous predecessor, or even appropriated Tofana's name in order to benefit from the notoriety. After all, the poisoner's numerous visitors must at least have provided her with distraction. More probably, they paid handsomely to hear her story. Mm, right, and she could have turned that around to better treatment and bribes in prison. Mm-hmm. All this, Mike thinks, allows for two conclusions. The first is that we can place the historical Giulia Tofana in Rome of 1640 and 1650, The second is that the notoriety of the Naples poisoners tells us a good deal about the lasting impressions that the real Tofana made in early modern Europe. Her name, it's clear, became synonymous with poison. Not merely in Italy, but well outside of its boundaries. All right, so this person is maybe real, mostly myth. Fine. This poison is maybe real, mostly myth. Yeah. I think there's grains of truth to all of it. I do think Julia Tofana existed, and I think she was a poisoner. I love the idea of a full century later, another woman just taking the name because it was this famous poisoner's name. Yeah, that's useful. I love that. And I think that's why we get conflicting accounts. People probably took on her name as a sort of homage to the work they were doing and and the person who created it. Right. Especially if you're an underground seller, Having that notoriety, something people can whisper about and pass along very easily. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, we, we should throw this out there. We do keep using the word myth in a way we don't really use it. In this case, the modern version of the word myth meaning falsehood. Mm-hmm. Usually we don't use it that way. And in fact, myths, as this podcast kind of <laughs> has, is filled with stories, do not mean the same thing as falsehood at all. Worth clarifying because, oh boy, are the myths, falsehoods around this story rampant. They are all over the place. It's it's so hard to discern 
what really happened. Which leads me into the next part of this story, which is how did these women get caught? There are three theories as to what happened to end the terrifying reign of the group of poisoners. The first theory suggests that Spara, Julia Tofana's stepdaughter, and her associates became dangerously overconfident and greedy. They allowed their clients to commit so many murders and in so short an amount of time that the rate of deaths was obvious to everybody. Supposedly, even Pope Alexander VII noted that there was an unusually high number of young widows walking around. <laughs> the second theory comes from Cardinal Pallavicini, who was one of Pope Alexander VII's cardinals. He writes that the first hint of scandal emerged from the confessional. One of Spara's clients admitted to her priest that she had plotted to kill her husband. After a hurried consultation resulted in an offer of immunity, the entire story soon spilled out. Ugh. Snitches get stitches. I know. Snitches get stitches. Come on. Just let them do their thing. I want to say that though this account deserves careful consideration, not only was Pallavincini a senior member of this city's government, but he was also personally involved in the interrogations of the members of Spara's group, and as such was in the perfect position to set down a reliable summary of the gang's downfall. However, he may also have had an interest in stopping the hags and Jezebels hunting in the city. So while his contemporary accounts are important to note, because they are contemporary accounts, it's also important to note that he might have been very biased in his pursuits. I imagine it's a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Rowan, there is nonetheless a third version of the unveiling of the poisoners. Roman chronicles and court records suggest that the gang was exposed not by the activities of Spara's aristocratic contacts, but by the low-class clients whom she left to Giovanna de Grandis. De Grandis, in this telling, was the weak link in the operation— She'd come to the attention of the authorities and had been detained on no fewer than three occasions. Her luck ran out with the fourth. This time, she was caught with a sample of her poison on her, and although she claimed it was simply a potion intended to remove unwanted marks from clients' faces, her captors suspected otherwise and intended to play a bit of a long con. Dash explains that the police, realizing DeGrandis could not be working alone, released her. This allowed her to go back to her old haunts, and then they set up an elaborate trap to catch both her and her confidants. This trap was a Florentine noblewoman by the name of Signora Loretti. They brought her to the city, and they set her up with the false identity of Marchesa Romanini. Establishing her credentials by moving her into a substantial mansion in a fashionable district in the city, Loretti began to pay visits to de Grandis. At first, the fake Marquesa sought the services of an astrologer. But it was not long before she was spinning tales of an unhappy marriage and offering huge sums for a bottle of aqua tofana. An appointment was agreed, and as soon as the exchange was made, two officers and a notary stepped out from behind a curtain. Which feels a little theatrical to me. Yeah, 100%. The liquid in the bottle was handed to Loretti and was tested on a number of stray animals. 
swiftly killed them, and the whole gang was rounded up and brought to trial. Oh. The result was the scandalous court case whose written remnants Adamolo discovered during his searches of Rome's archives in the 18th century. The main members of the gang were rapidly convicted, and although the details of the sentencing are missing from the record, we know that on July 6th, 1659, Spara herself, de Grandis, Maria Spinola, Laura Crispolti, and Graziosa Farina were all hanged in the Campo di Forini in the presence of an unusually large crowd. Ooh. Notably, though, Pope Alexander VII ensured that many noblemen's names were left out of the trial, and conspicuously, the priest that assisted the women was never mentioned. Also important to note that at least some of the evidence was extracted using torture, making it very dangerous to accept what was said at face value. Yeah, we're getting a lot of that um, crowd mentality. Mm. What is the word for it, Trace? Oh, mass hysteria. Yeah, we're getting a lot of that mass hysteria. Torture out information. Is it really true? Everyone's getting more and more terrified. Finding evidence where no evidence could possibly exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Again, because people were so scared of this. There's even an account of Julia Tofano being arrested, which again, it's also believed she passed away peacefully in her sleep or died a hundred years later in a prison. Mm -hmm. So this account is, if anyone, the person who took on the original Julia Tofana's name. They tortured her until she confessed to poisoning over 600 men between 1633 and 1651. It's possible that the real number was even higher. In July of 1659, Julia Tofana was executed along with her daughter and three employees. Again, this is all very muddied because that execution was just described earlier without her there. There are so many documents that contradict each other. And as I also mentioned, these websites love to really drag you into the article, really get you hooked by describing mm -hmm. her as the most prolific serial killer of all time. Of course. So I want to be clear, it is not 100% certain that Julia Tofana existed, lettering of poisoners, or even knew how to make poison. I have a tasty little treat here for you. This is a 19th century artist's impression of the Aqua Tofana gang, all depicted notably as hags. Oh, of course, yeah. And they're drawn that way, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, same classic style. We're looking at an etching. It's a bunch of women gathered around a round table, dark room, singular light source above them. They have vials and, um, like, long spoons for mixing and a mortar and pestle and all these different items that show that they're making poison and then one woman is like holding something up to the light and really inspecting it and the way that they're drawn has exaggerated mm -hmm. features and they look more wrinkly and blah, 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 and they they're gonna start cackling and any going minute. full witches of Macbeth at any moment it has a very strong double double toil and trouble energy it really does and it's supposed to okay so here's where listener discretion comes in because we're going to shift the topic to one about domestic abuse. The idea that a bunch of women in history got together and began poisoning bad men or abusive husbands leads many of us, kind of including you and me, to be like, yeah, go get them, girl. This is an interesting story. But obviously the reality is, and, and what we're going to talk about now, is that these women suffered greatly at the hands of their husbands, who treated them horribly with no repercussions. 
These women were responding to an unbearable situation, and this might have been the only way they felt that they could leave or even survive. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we get to be like, hell yeah, girl, because we're talking about 17th century. It seems so far in the past. Is it even real? It kind of allows people to rally around this almost fictionalization of what that would look like that's seems equally more empowering and equally more menacing Mm -hmm. in the same way we're getting these like bubble bubble toil and trouble witch images there's the alternate of like yes queen like all of that that you can only do because of when and where and how this is presented yes it it makes it feel a little bit safer to approach the topic because when it's so far in the past, they feel it's like the idea of the less dead. It's so far gone that it, it you can interchange them with fictional people and it has the same impact on our day-to-day lives. Yeah, and, and people become more fictionalized the further we get from them in history. Absolutely. So let's talk about what some people may experience today because abuse is not a thing of the past and it still happens very often. We're going to start with a few statistics. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million men and women. Today, I want to focus on psychological abuse, which can be much more difficult to spot or even realize is happening, but can be equally as dangerous as physical abuse alone. The NCADVA describes psychological abuse thusly. Psychological abuse involves trauma to the victim caused by verbal abuse, acts, threats of acts, or coercive tactics. Perpetrators use psychological abuse to control, terrorize, and denigrate their victims. It frequently occurs prior to or concurrently with physical or sexual abuse. End quote. Victims of psychological abuse often experience depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal ideation, low self-esteem, and difficulty trusting others. According to the paper titled Emotional Abuse in Intimate Relationships, The Role of Gender and Age by Dr. Gunnar Karakert and Kristen E. Silver, there was a study done in 2012 that looked at rates of emotional abuse, sexual coercion, and stalking or obsessive behavior in heterosexual couples. This study found that rates for emotional abuse were high, averaging around 80%. They also found that 40% of women and 32% of men reported expressive aggression, such as name-calling, and 41% of women and 43% of men reported coercive control, isolation tactics, or threats of harm. Furthermore, new finding from the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found that approximately half of Americans reported experiencing lifetime emotional abuse by a partner. I want to emphasize that study is from 2012 and was very heteronormative. And post, I say post-pandemic, meaning post the early pandemic when everyone was really staying home. Yeah. Yeah, lockdown. There are a lot more studies that are starting to look at how abuse increased during that time. Absolutely. Because isolation either fuels or allows that behavior to continue and escalate. And it's really scary how slowly it can happen. Yeah, you and I have talked about that a lot. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. How would you how would you put that? Like, 
in trying to frame that to someone who hasn't been in on our conversations. That is such a good transition to the next thing that I have written down, which is what to look for. Yeah. I love accidentally giving you transitions. (laughs) So not all victims realize they're suffering from abuse when it's happening or even afterwards, after it's over. Abuse is not one size fits all. It can be very difficult to spot, and this is especially true to what Dr. Kirk Honda of Psychology in Seattle, a fantastic YouTube channel and podcast, describes as the shift in normal. So this is what you and I talked about, how things slowly become worse and worse and worse over time. This is when something you would once be shocked by or really upset about becomes normal or even good. So this was the best example I could throw together. Let's say person one accidentally burns their hand while cooking and they spill something. Person two might say something like, oh, great job, idiot. You're always so clumsy. Like, I don't even know why you think you can be a chef. And then, like, just laughs and walks away. Person one is standing there feeling relieved because they were afraid that person two was going to scream at them in anger or try to start a fight. So they say nothing because they're just, they're just glad person two isn't mad. And the insult doesn't even register to me. And I hope many people out there, I would be furious if someone spoke to me that way and tried to imply I couldn't pursue a dream job because I burned my hand once while cooking. But in this scenario, person one is so used to being screamed at and and they've shifted their normalcy to insults. It very likely doesn't start out with insults, maybe just frustration. But things gradually get worse and worse over time and the baseline for normal drastically shifts from what started out in the beginning to where it is at the end. I would say a similar example, but that kind of moves in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Um, The example is, uh, you know, person one, incredibly jealous behavior. Mm -hmm. Person two, maybe they go in with, like, having been in therapy with enough, like, knowledge arm to say, like, okay, your jealousy is something I have to deal with, but it's not my responsibility. Yes. And then it manifests as jealousy only with uh, partners that are opposite sex. Let's say it's a Mm -hmm. heterosexual couple. Like, oh, you can't see people of the opposite sex. And that is an issue. Mm -hmm. And then somehow, slowly over time, it starts looking like, well, why didn't you invite me? to a gathering with your friends, even if it's all girlfriends in this Mm -hmm. case, or asking questions and checking up um, when you're out. It's it's all those little details Mm -hmm. that maybe could seem okay. Like, maybe I was just asking how your time was. I'm just interested in you. Mm Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's an extension of an insidious behavior. Absolutely. And it will start out very likely as, how was your time out with friends? Well, who was there? Oh, did they bring anyone else with them? That sounds like it was such a really fun time. The next time. So who was there? Oh. Oh, and they brought their significant other? Okay. All right. Sounds like it was cool. The next time. Who was there? Why were they there? You didn't tell me they were going to be there. The next time. Why wasn't I included? Like, it just builds. It it builds and it is insidious because it's hard to describe when you're experiencing it. Yeah. And it feels like something that should be easier to tackle than it is. It feels like it should be clear cut. And I also think in a lot of ways, American heterosexuality kind of 
makes a level of jealousy, specifically men who are partnered with women, because mm-hmm. that's really what we're dealing with with the story of aqua tofana, the heterosexual yes. relationships. There is this level of jealousy that is baked into patriarchal society that men are allowed to have mm-hmm. that makes that another insidious example like you can't it's it's already in the society so like oh was he jealous or did he care about you god yes and jealousy is of course not the only example it's just jealousy is something we have a big word for whereas right. a friend brought up to me recently um she said you know In my generation, when I was in college, the big thing that we all had to grapple with and figure out how to say was date rape. We had to label that as something and then teach ourselves how to say this happened to me and this wasn't okay. Because before then, date rape wasn't a thing. You got – rape was for strangers. Mm -hmm. It was for criminals. And it was a very, very clear cut. You got attacked. It, it was something that you you at no point wanted a part in. Right. And she said, you know, to me, your generation and what is happening right now for women is everyone needs to figure out how to cla- reclassify abuse because it is not always just that like theatrical TV smack across the face that we would Absolutely. love to be the only version. Like – Absolutely. Because people will get up in arms about that one. Mm-hmm. So actually, the, again, perfect transition into the next uh, set of topics I want to talk about. I live to cue you up for transitions. I felt like it was really important for us to use our platform to give people tools to recognize when this might be happening. So I have listed a subset of the behaviors that I found on Healthline for people to look out to. But if you are interested in reading that whole article about emotionally abusive behaviors, it is linked in the show notes. Here are a few things to look out for. So these are tactics used to undermine self-esteem. Name-calling and derogatory nicknames. This person might blatantly call you stupid, a loser, or other insults. Maybe they use terms of endearment that highlight things you're sensitive about, like my little nail biter or my chubby pumpkin. And noted... They ignore your requests to stop. Dismissiveness. They'll brush off your achievements or claim responsibility for your successes. Body language like eye-rolling, smirking, head-shaking, and sighing. Joking. Specifically, when you express discomfort with something they said, they might respond with, can't you take a joke? And you're just left wondering if you're the one that's too sensitive. There are some tactics used to maintain power and control, such as spying on you digitally. They might demand your passwords or insist you go password-free and regularly check your internet history, emails, texts, or call logs. This one is thrown around a lot, but gaslighting. Someone abusing you may deny that specific events, arguments, or agreements ever even happened. This tactic can leave you questioning your own memory, mental health, or well-being. The thing that people forget about gaslighting because it's such a buzzword right now is also gaslighting happens over time. Yes. It's not the one time someone was like, I don't remember it that way. It's not that like one argument where you don't see eye to eye. It's someone consistently chipping away Mm -hmm. at how you see your reality. Absolutely. Not intentionally necessarily, but over time. Mm Mm-hmm. The last one here is that they might lecture you constantly, especially after you make a mistake no matter how minor, 
Uh, they will probably catalog all of your errors in a single monologue. These tactics are used to accuse, blame, or deny. These are jealousy, maybe f accusing you of flirting or cheating often. Using guilt, they might try to guilt trip you into doing something by saying things like, you owe me this, or look at all I've done for you. Denying the abuse, when you express concerns about their behavior, they might deny it, seemingly bewildered at the very thought. They may even suggest you're the one with the anger and control issues, or that they say they only get angry because you're such a difficult person to deal with. This last category is tactics used to isolate or neglect. They might withhold affection. They won't touch you or even hold your hand or pat you on the shoulder, especially if they know this is something you're seeking. Shutting down communication. They might wave you off, change the subject, or even ignore any attempts to contact them. And disputing your feelings. So no matter what feeling or emotion you express, they might insist you shouldn't feel that way. For example, they might say, you shouldn't be angry over that, or what have you got to feel sad about? Um, so again, all of these are a small subsection of the full article, but I really wanted to include those here because I've seen these patterns of behavior before. And a single one here and there on their own, it, it might just be a poor communication style, but to see them layered together, please recognize that that's not healthy and, and that's something that you should look into. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying Tracy fully put this episode together because of what's been going on in my own life. And we talked about it a lot. And I have kept having these moments recently where my reactions to normal things that people do were based on behaviors that were abusive. So like, I have a friend who likes to put, like, frame his compliments in a really joking way. And it's actually a very mm -hmm. charming thing to do. Mm -hmm. And whenever he would do that to me, I'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I get it. Like, you don't like that. I'm so sorry. And he had to be like, no, I'm, I'm complimenting you. And the joke is just for flavor, like, I'm not secretly right. telling you I don't like something. Right. Right. The, 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 the joke was a way to get you to accept the compliment, not a way to communicate an underlying frustration. Right. Or, you know, there's all of these – there's all of these little elements that if I in my life – and actually did, like, try to pin down, mm -hmm. I couldn't figure it out. And – it was very difficult for me for a long period of time to know, like in my gut, mm -hmm. this isn't right and not be able to articulate it or intellectualize it. That was very hard for me. That is something that I want. I want words for things Yes, to be able to justify it. And when it is insidious and not consistent, when you have the good and the bad, when you have someone reading your text messages, which is a big bad, mm -hmm. but then at the same time you have equally good things, mm -hmm. or you have jealousy that some people will frame as a good thing. When you have all these little parts and pieces that don't add up in the way movies make it seem, it's really hard to deal with. It's really hard. And there's a level of guilt too, because 
maybe you love this person, but you're also hurt by this person. And how do you reconcile that? The other thing that I didn't understand either is that not every behavior that someone does that is abusive is them sitting around and like the Grinch smiling and like putting their hands together and going, I'm going to do this evil thing. Very often it is behavior that is baked into a goal that is not keeping your best interests at heart. Right. So they might be undermining your self-confidence without even really understanding that they're doing it. Because also deep down they might feel insecure a lot. Again, I can't recommend Psychology in Seattle, um, the podcast and the YouTube channel, Dr. Kirk Honda. The amount of empathy that man has for everyone and the way that he'll dive into what I would perceive as just a really toxic behavior and say, well, no one wants to be this horrible person. People have a reason they're reacting the way they're reacting and diving into it. And that's true. It also makes it very hard if you're on the receiving end, if you understand the why behind a behavior, to not coincide that with justifying the behavior. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Because, you know, I want my monsters under the bed to look like monsters under the bed. I want them to advertise it in neon letters. Like, Mm -hmm tell me, but that's not what it looks like. And the hardest thing in my kind of recent history is never landing on a consistent version of what was true. Yeah. Um, constantly having the truth be up for grabs for who could prove it first or louder or – right who was willing to fight for what the version of the truth was. Um, oh, that's so frustrating. Yeah, it's it's. I think a lot of people experience that in a lot of different ways, especially with mental health things. You know, you and I use the term like unreliable narrator a lot. Yes. And that is a great place for that form of undermining to start mm-hmm. because everyone has a version of reality that is colored by how they think and feel about it. Mm-hmm. But if you start there and then you slowly work to changing the facts, then it's already done. It's – it's. I don't want to say it's easy, but it, looking back, it it seems like it was. Right. So, yeah, we have a podcast and we're 89 episodes in. And I wish so badly that I had ever heard a podcast mention it casually i don't understand how i existed on the internet for so long as a woman who is at least trying to be very engaged in feminism and Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. both of those things and never occurred to me i just also want to i really want to thank you for giving me the space to explore this topic and i know it's 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 a very difficult thing for for you to dive into but um the fact that you were so determined to use our platform to help other people not experience the things that you experienced is so goddamn brave. And I'm so proud of you and grateful for it. Oh, thanks. Trace was there the whole time. You know, you make it easy. Um, I, it, it's important to me because trying to tell people like the past in a story doesn't sound as ugly as it felt at the time and it doesn't encompass 
it feels like they're words that are too mundane to encompass the lasting effect. Yes. Like I constantly want the way that I feel about it and the way that I continue to behave about it mm-hmm. to be as mundane as it sounds. Right. Um, and that's just not how it is. So I think that when you presented this and like you really spearheaded this, but we kind of landed on this really great solution almost of saying elevating the things that I would have called mundane to the height that they actually are. Yes. So let's talk about how to leave a potentially abusive relationship, which many people know can be extremely challenging and potentially the most dangerous part of the relationship. This is because the abusive partner may utilize any number of the following barriers to prevent the victim from leaving. Isolation, their children, physical harm, threats, financial control, loss of housing, removal of resources or information, immigration status, the racism, transphobia, homophobia, and discrimination against queer couples in the courts, religion, culture, family pressures, hope in the possibility of change, or even shame. Healthline states that, quote, Leaving an abusive relationship often proves more challenging if you're married, have children, or have shared assets. If that's your situation, a good next step involves seeking legal assistance. A domestic violence advocate or mental health care professional can also help you develop an exit plan to leave the relationship safely. End quote. Someone gave me really great advice mm-hmm. uh, that I didn't end up needing to utilize, but the idea is that for any of a number of, of difficult situations you could be in that involve just domestic life, you might not need to use the the physical things that a shelter offers, but a lot of shelters keep information readily available for someone who calls and just asks for sources, a list of mm-hmm. lawyers, guidance on how to get information about you out of someone's hands, like uh, basically a library of useful tools. And that never occurred to me. Yeah. Never occurred to me. Yeah, because when you think of abuse hotlines or shelters, it's usually just one singular thing. That, at least that we think of. At least that's what I thought of. I didn't. I wouldn't have thought of calling just to get help on what to do next because it feels like if you're calling for help, you need to take all that you can. Right. And the same goes for suicide hotlines, mental mm-hmm. health hotlines, all of those resources that are available for people who need help to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. I would say don't assume that you need to be at the furthest degree you can imagine to utilize those resources. Absolutely. The following resources can also help you come up with a plan. Domesticshelters.org. You can visit this website for educational information, a free hotline, and a searchable databases of services in your area. And Love is Respect. This nonprofit organization offers teens and young adults a chance to chat online, call, or text with advocates. If you or anyone you know needs help, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. 
all of that information is in our show notes as well. What do you think about people responding to discussions about the subtleties of domestic abuse and stories like Aqua Tofana and kind of like crying misandry and, you know, like getting really heated about this quote unquote hatred of men. Cause we, we've, we've hit that a lot. We have in just chatting. Yeah. We have. And I think we've been clear to differentiate between terrible behaviors, a society that encourages bad behaviors or does not teach appropriate behaviors and men as a whole the thing that we focus on is less on men and men's feelings and more on the people who are impacted by them and i've always felt that that is the thing that we focus on we focus on women queer people the people who are othered by the fact that cishet white men are the ones with power they just are if you've made it 89 episodes in and you don't agree with that, I mean, I, I don't know how else to sell it to you. <laughs> that That's the way that it's been. So if someone listens to this episode and comes to us and says, you're misandrists, you're, you know, making men out to be the villains. In this case, I, I wouldn't say men are the only villains. Obviously, when it comes to domestic abuse, anyone can be an abuser and anyone can be abused. Men can be abused. Women can be abused. Parental figures. Can be abused. Parental figures can be abused. Siblings. Children, siblings. Exactly. The list goes on and on and on, which is why I wanted to make sure to discuss that here. But I will always defend the way that we try to approach these topics because we're not approaching them with malice. We're approaching them with love for the people impacted. It's also worth noting that misandry is a symptom of this larger problem, right? It was explained, it's been explained so many times in videos and memes all over the internet. That's really simple way to look at it. But, you know, when you have, when you adopt a dog from a shelter that got beat up on by a man and the dog is afraid to be around men, like you don't say like, oh, you know, the dog is terrible. You just try to make it to, experience is better and see if you can help it heal from that and then hopefully it's not afraid of men anymore like that is the most simple terms i can think of to frame this idea of when people want to cry misandry well why mm -hmm. well, what is going on that can be repaired by all of us to make it so people don't walk around feeling afraid. Because even from the side of the men who are afraid of being poisoned in this story, because this is a story that's being sold to everyone, mm -hmm. what is the fear and how is it driving people to behave? I think you just hit the nail on the head so well that there's so much about this that's just based in fear. People react to fear. And the people, I think, crying with Sandra are the ones who are feeling for the first time in their lives afraid because they feel power being taken away. And for the first time in much of history, it's not coming back. You know, in this story, men felt that their power was being taken away, and so they crushed the poisoners. In the witch trials, men felt their power was being taken away, and so you burn the witches. Here, consequences are being felt. And that is scary. But that's why it's important to educate and to know how to create a space where people aren't afraid. And by that, I mean the people who 
cishet white men. You know, I think you need to, to educate yourselves. And I think if you're listening to this now and you're still with us, thank you for being the kind of person who is taking the time to listen. And it's important to put that into action. Yeah. And by that same token, if you're in a bad situation and it doesn't even have to be domestic abuse, like if that doesn't resonate, but you're sitting here like I'm in a bad situation, fear of leaving is very insidious. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it grows the more you think about it. And it's really tough to have like every time you touch it, something to have it seem bigger and badder. That's really hard. Yeah. And I want to say like, oh, <laughs> don't let fear stop you. But like, that's not realistic. That's right. just, it's just not. But this idea, like this, I, this story is so sensational. These poisoners, this society, mm -hmm. like everything about it is big. And it creates this idea of what is enough. Like what is bad enough mm -hmm. that we take action. And since you brought it back to the really the really quiet tough details about domestic abuse you know what's often labeled under covert narcissism mm -hmm. i want to as we wrap up take it back to you do not need a big bold story for something to be enough for you to want to make a change i couldn't agree more and and yes thank you for framing it that way and with all of that heaviness <laughs> This was the story of Aqua Tofana and Julia Tofana. Woo! I know. It was a lot. Thank you. Thank you for it. Thank you for sharing your story, Rowan, and being brave enough to be the one who puts their voice out there so that others might feel strong enough to be heard. Oh, you know, to be fair, like, I, I, there's only so much one can share on a podcast, and so it is, you know, it's gauging when you think about like telling really intimate details about yourself, like how much does this cost me right. personally? But I don't think that any uh, cost that accompanies the amount of information that I've shared is greater than the possibility that maybe one person who was like me could just start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I wish I just started thinking about it sooner. So I think – all the research that you've done and all the work you put into this episode and me touching on my life is the cost is not too great for that. Right. Do you want to tell me something good? Sure. <laughs> so my something good this week is really simple. It was my birthday recently and I'm just very grateful to the people in my life who took the time to celebrate and um, for especially our dear friend Casey who <laughs> – planned a lot of really lovely surprises for me because for the first time in my life, my twin sister and I did not celebrate our birthday together. She was in a very fortunate position to be able to go on a cruise and she usually plans our birthday. So <laughs> I was like, oh boy, I don't know how to plan my own birthday. I was very uncomfortable with the idea because I've never had a solo birthday. It's always been this joint experience and my friends are amazing. They just planned a, a, a weekend that was so, so very on brand for me. It was it was great. So I'm just very grateful for the people in my life and the fact that I got to have a very a very cherished birthday year. Yeah, it makes me happy. Yeah. And that's I got to catch little glimpses of it. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you, Rowan? Tell me something good. 
Well, on your birthday, uh-huh. you did text me that there was a housewarming present coming my way. Yes. Um, and it has <laughs> since arrived. So you sent me this amazing box of just spooky, witchy fun. And it was from <laughs> this company called Under the Seventh Ray. Mm-hmm. And y'all, it came with a candle. There was a bath bomb. There was this geode slab. It had yummy lip balm and just all these fun little... Like, yeah. yummy things. I What I would call, like, just girly things. But, you know, just that pampering vibe. Yes. I wanted a combination of stuff that was, like, witchy and gothic, but also cozy and warm. And um, this really came through. Yeah, it was so wonderful. It was such a lovely present. I got a housewarming present. As you should. My- new little home that's so thoughtful and of course you texted me on your birthday and i responded did you just get me something on your birthday yes i did oh (laughs) my other something good is that i very intentionally didn't pick up the phone when you called me on my birthday because i like to save the voicemails that you leave singing happy birthday to me so i can listen to them (laughs) i sing happy birthday to tracy on her birthday and i sing happy birthday to rowan on her birthday I think we've been pretty consistent. I don't know. It's been years and years. I'm sure we've missed one, but it's, we do that. Mm-hmm. And I always hope that you and Jamie aren't with each other when I call because I have to call and sing to both of you. But yes. very often I call you or Jamie and then immediately call the other person and you're just sitting right next to each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> I like singing to people on their birthday. It feels special when it happens. Mm-hmm. So happy birthday. Happy belated. Thank you. Thank you. We Our listeners were amazing. I actually didn't really say anything about it being my birthday. I think you were the one who kicked that off. And then our mm-hmm. listeners were just so sweet and thoughtful. Everyone sent you bats. They sent me bats. It was great. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for sticking with us while we had our little hiatus and while we do episodes that are a little heavier and a little more personal. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Shockingly, Men didn't like this new pound f- <gasps> A new, new pound, pound flour! flour. <laughs> <laughs>